You're listening to Leading the Way, a podcast series from global advisory firm StoneTurn, where our experts speak with accomplished and approachable business leaders who share their real-world insights on a range of topics, from risk and compliance to investigations, business disputes, and more. Welcome. I'm Xavier Ustenio, the partner at global advisory firm StoneTurn. On today's episode, we continue our conversation with Philippa Gerling, Chief Risk Officer at Vero, about what the risk landscape looks like for Branches Bank. Let's get started. Philippa, there are uh, risk challenges for for risk manager. I mean, that's what you that's what you deal with, obviously, and you interact. I would imagine on a regular basis with the operations people who try to bring in um, uh, new products, new offerings to customers, try to improve top line, bottom line, uh, uh, branch out and offer more services to uh, their customers. And um, I would say, at least based on my experience uh, and talking to a number of chief risk officers in financial institutions, there's a, 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 a tug of war between operations. It's not unique to financial institutions, but certainly is a big concern. Um, there's a tug of uh, you know war between uh, uh, the uh, risk officers and the operations people. How how does how does that change, if at all, or how does that compare in a virtual environment, new bank built from the ground up, to what your previous experience was? Yeah, I think there's a couple of elements there. One is that we have the benefit of having a very robust risk management framework because we chose to become a nationally chartered bank. And so unlike most fintechs where it would be quite a streamlined risk management framework, it's probably quite thin, we have a very robust risk management framework which would be appropriate for a mid-tier bank. And so with that framework in place, actually I think it reduces the tug of war because we have already agreed our policies and our standards and our processes. And we've had some time now, a, a year, to really refine those processes. And we continue to refine those processes to make sure that they're working effectively. We have robust conversations about risk. I don't think we have tug of war conversations about risk. And the reason for that is because everyone is aligned to the mission. And I think that actually is the differentiating factor. As a risk manager, the thing that I always know is that we will never stray from the mission. And so that means that there is a North Star for us all to point at when we have conversations about risk. There's a lot of conversation um, around risk. We have a risk management committee. We have an audit and risk committee. We have a new product approval process, which meets every week where we all discuss the products that are coming in talk through what the risks might be, how we can mitigate those risks. We also have a lot of conversations around the fact that everybody at Varo is a risk manager because everybody at some point has a process that they are part of or that they own, which we don't want to break. We're quite small still. I mean, we've grown a lot in the last three years. We're now up, you know, more than 700 people. Um, but nevertheless, that's enough of a small institution that we know each other. We know that we're all aligned on the same mission and we can have a conversation around, is this something that we're about to do that misaligns with the mission or that exposes the customer to harm or to confusion or that puts ourselves or the financial services sector at risk? And those conversations are always the boundary edges of everything that we do. So I've actually found it 
the least confrontational risk role that I've had. I haven't had those lying awake at night thinking, how am I going to convince people this is dangerous? That has not been an issue for me here. I just escalate it and we have the conversation. And that probably is the benefit of starting from scratch and not having the Bolton type of approach. I would assume it's uh, speaking like a true risk uh, executive, you own, you tell your uh, operations people, you own the risk as much as I do. I guide you, you own the risk, you get back to me um, because you know what our North Star is. That, that's, uh, that's a fair comment. Um, just a quick follow-up question on this. So how big is your uh, risk management team? If you don't count in the operations people who you've tasked with managing the risk? Uh, we are still less than 50. And within the risk function, that includes operational risk, which means business continuity planning, third-party risk management, model governance, all of the operational risk elements like risk and control self-assessment, operational risk event tracking and remediation. There's also the credit risk function, information security function, the compliance function, and the largest group is the BSA team. Now, the BSA team will continue to scale and grow as our customer base grows, because that is a, a clear um, calculation between the number of customers that you have and the number of alerts that you receive and the number of investigations that you have to do. So the BSA team will always grow as we grow, but the rest of the framework is really in place and we're not a complex business model. And so I don't anticipate that we're going to have to grow much really in the risk space, a small amount, but we won't be looking at, you know, 10 times the staff when we have 10 times the customers by any means. Right. And, uh, and uh, do, do you rely on uh, outsourcing uh, as well? I mean, uh, assuming that you're a, a younger bank, uh, online bank, you probably are using some outside resources as well. To, on the back office side, maybe on the risk management side or onboarding or things like that, if that's something you can share. We have some, um, some external support around the simplest processes, uh, but mostly we operate everything in-house. It's only where there's something that's sort of a larger volume, simple process that we may use external resources to assist us with that. But mostly we like to keep things in-house. And, and just for the for the audience, and I, I uh, you know, forgive me for not having asked that earlier. I assume people would know. But um, what are the product offerings that you have now for uh, for customers? Yes, well, so the most exciting first uh, product offering for our customers is a checking account and a really great savings account. Actually, this is transformational for people that they can find somewhere that has a checking account with a debit card. And a really good savings rate. We have a very nice savings rate for our customers, which then incentivizes them to save. And then we put onto that uh, the ability to put in an automated way of saving. So you can save from your pay every time you get paid. You could automatically set up times where money gets moved into your savings account. And that's something that is the fundamental that people are excited about. Then on top of that, we need to think about, well, what happens when you have a cash flow emergency? And this is where people get into trouble with overdraft fees. And so instead of overdraft fees, we offer something called Varo Advance, which gives people an opportunity to elect to get a small, short line of credit into their account so that they do not need to go negative, up to about $100. So they may say, it looks like I'm going to be $75 short on this thing that I need. And so they ask for a Varo Advance. They do it all in the app gets proved in the app, the $75 goes into their account 
and then most people select payday to pay it back. So VAR Advance has been hugely successful and very popular with our customers because it makes them feel much more in control of their finances without having to go into that overdraft status, which is a very negative, emotional place to be. Now, in addition to that, we also have a perks product where when you spend on your card in particular areas with particular vendors, you can receive cash back. And that cashback obviously is very important to people and it incentivizes them to be using their Varo card when they make those purchases. And um, that's helpful for them to have a way to manage their expenses and then also get perks for the times that they spend. And the one that we're really excited about that is currently in its sort of beta version, we have a few people who have their hands on it, is the Varo Believe card. And the Varo Believe card is designed to help people build credit. This is really about giving people who cannot get access to credit an opportunity to self-fund a card so that they can then build credit on that card. And we're really looking forward to launching that this year. And we think it's going to be transformative for people because this is an opportunity for them to stay in control of their finances, have access to a true credit card, that will help them build credit because they will be repaying the balance on that card guaranteed each month. Every time they want to use the Varo Believe card money, it's then they will put money into a vault where they can then say, for example, I want to spend $100 on my Varo Believe card. When that money is in the vault, they can then use their card, spend the $100. At the end of the month, when their bill comes for $100, it's already been set aside. That information then gets sent to the credit agencies to say this person has just paid for a credit card on time. Now, what we're hoping is that our customers will learn great credit behavior, will build credit, and then our credit roadmap will include the opportunity for them to get a non-secured card in the future. So you'll see that all the products that we design, we're designing around helping people manage their cash flow. Absolutely. Which, you know, I'm a firm believer in uh, financial education uh, from the start for everyone. That's very, very important to me. And, and as you mentioned, those $75 overdrafts, either because you didn't keep your eye on on the ball and you're distracted with something or you've got an emergency, shouldn't take you down uh, or cost you more than you actually needed or twice as much That's right. uh, just because you forgot to do something. So I, I praise that. Um, as, as a risk officer, there has to be things that keep you up at night or maybe make you go to sleep a little later than you would want to. So uh, are there are there such concerns with, within Vero? I mean, it may be uh, dependent upon this ability to repay on a timely basis. I'm sure that uh, you have a team of, of financial analysts who are measuring those risks and ability of people to repay. And, and sometimes people fail to repay. We may have some AML risks. Um, and, and I don't know what your customer base is too, but you know, as you expand, there's maybe more risk that you're taking. So could you tell us a little bit about what keeps you up at night or what you're focused on? Yes, I will honestly tell you nothing keeps me up at night. The thing that would keep me up at night is not knowing if there's a risk. Once I know that there's a risk and we've identified that risk, then we can move into the risk management phases of assessing it. Is it big or small? monitoring it, is it getting better or worse? And then making a decision, are we going to mitigate that risk or are we going to accept that risk? So as a risk manager, it's interesting because people often think risk managers are risk averse. Not true at all. I am not a risk averse individual, but I 
do feel very uncomfortable when I'm risk blind. I have to be able to see where all the risks are. So I would say at this point, I'm not being kept up late at night because I think we're doing quite a good job of finding our risks and responding to them. Having said that, the biggest risks that we face are actually not the regulatory ones and are not the credit risk ones. I think those are really very well managed and are quite low risk for us. The bigger risks for us are things like cyber. Of course. Right? So yeah. in a fully digital bank, if we were to lose our technology in some way, obviously it's a fatal blow. And so it's very important that we have extremely robust IT risk management and cyber risk management. And so the chief information security officer actually reports up into me in risk. And his role is to provide really effective second line challenge to the technology team. Say, here is the standard that we need to meet in order to know that we have robust cyber risk management controls, and then to hold them accountable for meeting those controls. So because we have that in place, it doesn't keep me up at night, but that is the area that we absolutely are invested in, very focused on. I think sort of associated with that is reputational risk. So the other thing that could be a real body blow for us would be getting something horribly wrong. Of course. Right? And in some way, accidentally harming or confusing our customers and the reputational damage could be really brutal for us. So we're very focused on making sure that we do not find ourselves in a situation where our reputation is being tarnished, either because something broke or because we made a mistake or we have somehow confused our customers. So the conversations that we have all the time in the risk management committee are around making sure that we continue to manage and mitigate those risks. If we were not talking about them, I would be lying awake at night. Hmm. Okay, that's fair. And I, it's also fair to say that reputational risk, I think, is is a risk that everybody has to face whenever you've got a product, whenever you've got uh, a brand that is built. And I think it's it's also uh, it also speaks uh, highly of the fact that in a very short period of time, you were able to uh, build a brand that you can worry about. So that's a good aspect of it, so to speak. This is true. <laughs> Moving on to, uh, you did talk about a new product that you're going to launch, uh, the Belief Card. Uh, do you have any plans for expansion? Because obviously the footprint uh, is limited to the United States currently, even though it's in a virtual world. Uh, do you have? Do you know of any plans currently that Vera would have? And it sounds like uh, that may be premature, but uh, to go to international places is there? I mean, obviously it's a different regulatory environment depending on which countries you go to. But is that something that you're thinking about expanding? Because really, uh, there's no borders other than those which are regulatory when it comes to the virtual world. Yeah, that's very true. I think we don't currently have plans to be jumping outside of the borders. We're really focused on making sure we build a great product set for our customers here in America. But we do know that the products will be appealing globally. There's no reason why a company like Faro with a product set that we have and the technology that we have couldn't expand. I think you're absolutely right. The biggest challenges we will face will be regulatory because the technology and the product can easily move across borders. The regulatory requirements around banking are high. And so for us to move into another nation, it would take quite a lift for us to then go through the process again to see how do we make sure that we are appropriately chartered or regulated or certified, whatever the particular regulations are in that, in that um, regional area. 
I could absolutely see Varro as a global force 10 years from now. The steps we take to get there and the timing, that we're not sure of. Of course. Do you have other plans? I mean, do you have, and again, you know, within whatever you can share with us, like some strategic uh, initiatives uh, besides the belief card that you're focused on or thinking about? Yeah, I would say uh, most of our focus at the moment is making sure that we are really effectively built for growth because we see the growth coming and it's coming very rapidly. And we have this opportunity to build a foundational operational process framework that is easily scalable. And so a lot of our focus at the moment is resilience, making sure that our platform is resilient, our products are resilient, that we're not building processes that will require us, as I said earlier, to have 10 times the people if we have 10 times the customers. We want to make sure that that's not the case. And in fact, what we do is we make it easier and easier and easier for the customer to interact with our product So our focus at the moment is going to be on getting people to know us. We're here, making sure people have heard of Varro, know Varro, understand our brand, making sure that our foundations are all really robust and resilient, and then continuing to execute on a product roadmap that we have set for the next three years, which will slowly bring more and more functionality to our customer base to help them on that journey for their own financial resilience by giving them access to products that will allow them to do that. So that's really our plans at the moment. It's a fairly simple plan. Get better and better and better at what we do. Sure. And continue to support the customers who are looking to us to help them on their journey. And finally, is there anything else that you would like to share with us today? I think um, one question that comes up a lot that we didn't discuss is, Now that Varo is a bank, does that mean that there's going to be a lot of fintechs that become banks? Yes. And my feeling on that question is the opportunity is there for them. The question is whether they have the appetite to do the work. Because now that Varo has actually received a national charter, it doesn't mean it's easier to get a charter. It never was a mystery. It's an open book test. They give you all of the regulations. Here is the National Charter Handbook. Here are all the exam handbooks you need to pass. But it is work. It's work and commitment to get it done. So it's going to be interesting to see how many fintechs actually decide that they want to go the National Charter route. And we certainly are aware that we have a three-year head start at this point. And so we're going to try and take advantage of that three-year head start. And we're going to make sure that we are a real model of what a digital bank that's fully chartered looks like, because we want to make sure that our customers can absolutely have trust in us and that our regulators can have trust in us in the financial system. And I think that your mission also is is focused, as as we've discussed, on ESG aspects. So even though some other entrants could come in and try to follow in your path, they may not have the same North Star, so to speak, and to use your term, uh, to stay focused on a specific part of the market. So they may be competing against other more, you know, brick and mortar banks, basically, who have fintechs bolt on. So I think it's pre- you're in pretty unique uh, situation. So the one other aspect we didn't talk about really is, um, so how does this model work? Right? So for us, 
how is it that we can service these customers when we're not charging them overdraft fees, which is really where most banks get their income for this group of customers? The answer is that we're really more like a payments company because the way that borrow generates revenue is through the transactions that our customers do. And so as they use their card, they're generating interchange. That interchange is not charged to them. And it's something that does come to us as revenue. Now, you only receive that interchange if you stay at an asset level that's sort of under 10 billion. It's the Durban rule. And so for large banks, they cannot receive interchange income that will offset the burden of managing and supporting those customers. We can, um, and that interchange income, plus we'll also see some fee income coming in through some of our products. Um, that is enough for us to actually have a very profitable model because our expense base is so much dramatically lower than fintech colleagues and peers in the industry who are relying on a sponsor bank and sharing their proceeds with that sponsor bank and incumbent legacy banks, which have, to your point earlier, very large legacy footprint that they need to manage as an expense. And so this is why the VARO model is unique at the moment, because we're really more like a payments company that's chartered as a bank. And so you have very low fixed costs compared to other banks that you don't have to cover. And you've got pretty much, well, you do have some limit in terms of size at some point, as you were referring to, there are there are some thresholds yes. uh, that if you reach, you would have some limits on. But in the, in the meantime, uh, you're, you've got variable growth revenues that you can that you can derive profits from with a pretty limited footprint, which both comes in the form of uh, real estate uh, commitments, which are not there, costs which are not there, and also it sounds like a pretty limited operational team um, with a growing customer base. So, and and I I thank you, and I I should have asked you. So That's right. um, thanks for for bringing that on uh, that question on because I had set it aside and I forgot to ask it. So thank you so much for that. Okay, so well, thanks for uh, for joining us today and for your great insight and presenting Varo. It was very informative, I thought, and uh, and very different from what we're used to. It was a pleasure having you, Philippa, and to our audience. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, and for other episodes of Leading the Way, please go to stoneturn.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's Leading the Way episode. For more helpful insights and practical advice, turn to us at stoneturn.com.